Vernomatic Productions. Are you ready? Live from the Metal Mayhem Studios in Rochester, New York. We are gold. And heard around the world by metalheads just like you. This is Metal Mayhem ROC. Heavy metal music. Your weekly dose of metal music. Interviews, album reviews, news, and more. Want to be part of the show? Send us a message through our website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Or hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Search Metal Mayhem ROC. It's getting nice and heavy. And now, welcome tonight's host, John the Vernomatic Verno. Good evening, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. Usually new content drops on Thursday nights, but tonight we got a special one. We're observing the death date of the late great Bon Scott. 43 years ago tonight, February 19th, 1980, Bon was found passed out and dead in a car in London. And at the time, everyone thought it was a alcohol poisoning death. Well, we got author Jesse Fink on the show tonight. Jesse has written two ACDC biographies. The first one is The Youngs, the brothers who built ACDC. And then he came back with an even bigger, better, and more controversial book called Bond, The Last Highway. Now, this book, Bond, The Last Highway, Fink concludes that Scott died of a heroin overdose and not the official cause, alcohol poisoning. Real interesting. He also addresses and provides new information regarding the widespread speculation that Scott contributed uncredited lyrics to the ACDC album, Back in Black. You know, it was always fishy in my eyes how a band could lose a singer, get a new one, regroup, record a new album, and release it within 150 days. Well... We're going to have Jesse here in a minute, and we're going to go over that plus much, much more. But first, just want to remind you to get up to that Metal Mayhem ROC website, MetalMayhemROC.com. Sign up for our email newsletter. It's our way of staying in touch with you on new shows, contests that we run, uh, promos for our radio show on Monday night. Staff reviewer Mark Zagati's there with CD reviews. Lately, last couple shows, last week we had Robin McCauley and Graham Bonnet talking about their solo albums and their tours and MSG antidotes. A couple weeks ago, we had John Gallagher of Raven, and we had the engineer from the Metallica Kill 'Em All album here. We were playing some outtakes from the Kill 'Em All sessions that no one's ever heard. That was a good one. And Steve Rosen, the author of the new Eddie Van Halen book, Tone Chaser, started things off in the mid-January for this year. So again, get up to the website, download some of these past shows, rate, review, subscribe, and that kind of stuff really does help. Okay, well, let's get into this. Uh, Jesse Fink and the book, Bond, The Last Highway. Going to run a spot for this year's Rockin' Pod going on in Nashville in early March, and then we'll get the Jesse Fink on here for this Bond Scott special. Okay, everyone, thank you for your support. And as always, keep it heavy. For those who love it loud, Pantheon Podcast presents Rockin' Pod Weekend. Nashville, March 17th through the 19th. It's a rock convention featuring panels, interviews, podcasts, signing sessions, vinyl, comic books, pop culture, and collectibles. Over 50 celebrity guests, including members of Mr. Big, Tough, Great White, 
Keel, Winger, Accept, and Twisted Sister. Live concerts including Rare Hair on Friday, Keel Fest 2 on Saturday, and Eric Martin's Big Acoustic on Sunday. Plus a rockin' comedy show featuring Courtney cronin Dold, Don Jameson from That Metal Show, and Craig Gass from The Howard Stern Show, and a whole lot more. Full details at rockinpod.com. Rockin' Pod Weekend is presented by Pantheon Podcasts in association with RFK Media, Third Power Amplification, and BobbyDreyer.com. Tonight's guest is Jesse Fink. Jesse is a British-Australian author of five books. 2007 had the Socceroos, the 2006 FIFA World Cup story, 2012, a memoir of divorce and dating, and in 2020, his fifth book, Pure Narco, the life story of cocaine trafficker Luis Navia. Sounds interesting. In between there, he had the twin biographies of the hard rocking band ACDC. Jesse, welcome to Metal Mayhem. How are you, my friend? Great to be here, mate, and um, good to be talking to you. I think we broke a record tonight. I'm in upstate New York, and you are in Bali, I believe. Bali, Indonesia, yep. <laughs> On the other side of the world. <laughs> the technology joins us. So this coming Sunday is going to be the 43-year anniversary of the passing of the late, great Bon Scott. And you uh, got involved with not one, but two biographies surrounding the band ACDC. You know, you're a nonfiction author, and like I stated in the open, you've had uh, five books, and the new one's coming out in 2023. How did you get involved with ACDC? And not once, but twice. Uh, Well, I... My second book was a, a book about my divorce from my uh, first wife, and um, and you know I don't know if, if any of your listeners have ever been through a divorce, but it's a fairly kind of uh, traumatic experience, particularly when children are involved. So, you know, mentally and emotionally, I was struggling through that whole sort of period, and um, it sort of coincided too with the sort of. Uh, the end of my sports writing career um i was writing for a tv network here in australia i sort of got involved in a ethical dispute with one of the heads of the network you know i felt that what they were doing was wrong and i sort of stood up to them and sort of lost my career as a result so professionally my life was in the toilet uh personally my life was in the toilet and i was quite suicidal actually and um you know, fairly, feeling completely sort of lost and down and and, and uh, like my life had sort of ended and, and there was a night where I was sort of sorting black socks on the end of my bed at three o'clock in the morning thinking my life can't get any fucking worse than this. And, you know, I heard a, a garbage truck outside and I thought, you know, it would just be very easy to just go and walk in front of that garbage truck and just sort of end my life. And for some reason... Instead of doing that, I had a I had a laptop on the end of my bed, and and it just happened to be on um, Power Age, and I put on some Power Age, <laughs> and uh, and uh, it was give me a bullet, and um, you know it was just like this fucking wall of sound, um, 
you know, the the Young's guitars on that that track, and and it sort of just lifted me up, and I just was completely energized by it. And I really kind of felt like the next day that sort of ACDC had intervened intervened at the right time and sort of saved my life. And so I felt like um, this duty almost to, to, to write a book to say thank you to them. Um, and so that's how the Youngs sort of started as a project because I actually contacted my, my publisher pretty much the next day and said, you know, hey, has anyone ever done a book on Angus and Malcolm Young? And she said, oh, well, why don't you add George Young as well? And so suddenly we had a book. And so that was literally how it sort of came about. It was just sort of came out of this sort of personal sort of moment of anguish. And um, I wanted to write a book about how sort of ACDC's music emotionally connected with people around the world and, and why is it that this band is the biggest rock band in the world when when so many other very good rock bands just don't have the same connection. So that was the the idea. And that book went on and became, you know, very successful. It was published in about twenty countries and uh thirteen languages and whatever. And then and, and then out of that, obviously, because that was successful, Penguin was very interested in in another book. And of course, uh I thought Bond Scott immediately. Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm sorry for the troubles you went through, and thank God there was a quote higher power that you know kept you with us. That's I have gone through a divorce and I've never fallen to where you were, but it is a tough time. So I'm glad things did work out for you, friend. That's that's scary stuff. It is scary stuff, but you know then it leads you on to to other things and and so you know it, it got me to write this book it, it got me to write the book on bon scott and if i hadn't written the book on bon scott i wouldn't have written the book about cocaine trafficking <laughs> and now i'm writing about spies in world war Two. so that's how life works out before we get into the bond book i have my notes and comments on that it's fantastic what really amazed you about george young and the dynamics of malcolm and angus because george was older give us a Quick little uh, summary of the meat and the potatoes of that book, if you can. Well, the the book wasn't a traditional biography. Um, it, it was sort of set up as sort of 11 chapters about 11 different songs that I felt were really important in the history of ACDC. And, um, you know, the first chapter is about uh, Good Times by the Easy Beats. Which was a a song that was was covered on the Lost Boys soundtrack um, by In Excess and Jimmy Barnes, and um, so Americans might might know it best from from that film. Um, and the second chapter was about a song called Evie by Stevie Wright, who was the lead singer of the Easy Beats. Uh, and and after Bond died. Stevie was was briefly considered as a possible replacement, but he was sort of lost in his heroin addiction, so that was never going to happen. But musically, those those songs are very very connected to the story of ACDC, and and so the rest of the the chapters on in that book are about ACDC songs. Um, but if you you know if you look at the you know the sonic architecture of ACDC, you'll find it has its roots in um, 
in the Easy Beats and what you know George Young was doing with the Easy Beats in the in the late sixties. Um, and then he brought that into you know his production work and 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 so by the time you know he started working on you know ACDC's first album as as producer, um, uh, you know he had basically perfected what we now know as the ACDC sound. So the whole book really is kind of um, uh, a homage to to that sound. You know, I mean, how would you describe that sound? I I, I think it's a, a very distinctive Australian sort of rock sound that, you know, people around the world try to replicate, but they don't sort of manage to do very successfully. And for some reason, Australian rock bands seem to do it very well. And I know that, you know, Guns N' Roses was very influenced by Australian rock. You know, but were it not for Rose Tattoo, would we have Guns N' Roses today? Probably not. Hmm. I didn't realize that. I've been an ACDC fan for years. I didn't realize that. Uh, Rose Tattoo was around before ACDC? Rose Tattoo were, were another Albert's act. I, I, I would, would, would tell your listeners to go out and, and listen to, <laughs> while we're talking about Australian rock and Guns N' Roses, um, go, and, go and dig out a, a song called Unpublished Critics by Australian Crawl and then play Sweet Child of Mine. They're almost identical. So <laughs> I'll do my heavy metal homework and check that out. Um, yeah. Check it out. Check it out. But yeah, no, uh, Guns N' Roses was was very influenced by by Roaster Two. Obviously, um, Roaster Two is another amazing sort of Australian rock band that never really got their dues, like so many Australian rock fans did. So you know, the Youngs was also about Australian rock music and why I think it's really special and why Australia had had this amazing vein of, of rock in the late 70s and early 80s and I wanted to sort of bring that to the world as much as I could and you know, I was very happy that the book got published where it did you know it ended up in places like you know Japan and Argentina and, you know so that's great for me as an author you you weren't an ACDC fan before the awakening if you will oh I knew of them obviously but you know I was I was not a, a devotee uh, by any means, uh, you know, if if I had to sort of, you know, tell you what my sort of favourite music is, it would be very different to ACDC. It's sort of like uh, Steely Dan, Doobie Brothers, you know, even Bee Gees, you know, sort of smooth AOR, sort of West Coast rock. Now, that's really kind of what I, what I listen to most. But, you know, somehow in between all that, I, I've managed to kind of, find a place in my life for ACDC. And, of course, you know, when you spend next to, you know, almost 10 years on, on two ACDC books, you uh, you get quite obsessive about it. You end up sort of, you know, knowing a lot and um, sort of, you know, I've started a, a Bon Scott forum on Facebook. We've got 16,000 members. We talk about, you know, Anything you can imagine, it's sort of twenty-four hours a day. So people are quite obsessed about ACDC. So you did the the uh, the Young Brothers. It gets popular. Now you get commissioned to do the Bon Scott book. 
hundreds of interviews, the um, attention to detail. You're telling a story. Quickly explain how you did all this because it's fascinating. Well, I mean, obviously, it was a very different book to the Youngs in that it was a, you know, sort of a linear biography. It was a story. It was a narrative. And my focus was the years 1977 to 1979, which essentially took Bond from his first concert in uh, Texas uh, right through to Ohio at the end of 79. And and so the book, when I first started, was really just going to be about, you know, Bond's time in America, which is the last highway, you know, the road that he took to his death. Because that's where ACDC did all their touring. Yep. In the years. You know, certainly, you know, 80% of their touring was, was taking place in the United States because they were trying to make it there. And then when I got to the end of you know, that work of, of documenting Bond's time in America, I realised I couldn't really ignore the death. Now, the death had sort of been covered to some degree in a, in a previous book about Bond Scott by Clinton Walker, uh, a book called Highway to Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, before I'd gone into this project, I... You know, I liked that book. It was it was a book that I enjoyed reading. But then, after I had done my own investigation of Bond's death, I just felt it was completely deficient. So I, I felt like there were so many things in that story that just hadn't uh, been covered by Clinton Walker. So I ended up spending, I think, a year and a half alone, just on the last twenty four hours of Bond's life because it was such a murky tale. And um, so in the end, the whole book ended up sort of taking four years of, of writing and research. And so it really sort of took over my life and, and, and became a sort of like a, an obsessive quest, almost like a, you know, sort of um, part of darkness <laughs> style um obsession really and uh and i felt like at the end of it that i had sort of come to grips with who he was as a human being rather than the the caricature you know the 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 rock legend that you know people like to talk about you know the guy who you know shags two women a day who you know drinks a bottle of whiskey and gets up sort of bright and perky and will get up on stage and deliver the greatest show ever and, you know, is cracking jokes and, you know, everyone's best friend and, you know, all this sort of bullshit. But in fact, you know, Bond had a, a fairly dark story behind, you know, the veneer. And um, so it was my kind of attempt, I, I think, to, to really get to know someone that I was deeply interested in myself, but I didn't feel like, the existing accounts of his life are actually really worthy, really, of, of you know, being portrayals of, of, of this person. Sure, many times there's tears behind those uh, smiles. Now, when you, you say you're obsessed with it, how were you doing research? Were you hitting the pavement, um, retracing the steps, going Not to bars that bartenders served them beers, and almost like a <laughs> private investigator? 
Uh, yeah, there was definitely a private investigation element to it. Yeah, and and I would certainly, you know, I was in America for some of that, and and so you know, I was in New York. I would meet, you know, people who were connected to ACDC who were still in New York, and you know, um, go to places. Yeah, literally on foot where you know ACDC might have might have been. Um, I went down to Miami. To to meet his, meet his girlfriend down there, mm-hmm. he still lived in Miami. Um, uh, I, I I sort of ended up spending a hell of a lot of time on Facebook, just sort of um, finding, you know, the lead singer or the lead guitarist or the bass player from you know uh, this obscure nineteen seventies band. <laughs> who happened to you know be the support act for ACDC that night in you know Bunbuckle, Ohio? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, who's the band that, from Florida? Critical Mass. Critical Mass. Critical Mass. And listeners, this this is fantastic. If you haven't read or listened to the book, this local band or regional band. Bon happens to walk into the bar after an ACDC show and the band was playing and they end up drinking that night and they become instant friends. Bon is bringing the guy back to the hotel because his buddies took off. Something close to that, right, Jesse? That's close to how the yeah, story. Uh, so um, Holly X, the, 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 the girl down in Miami, was basically mentioned to me by this guy called Michael Fazolari, who who was this um, very funny um, guy who sells refrigerators in Orlando, actually. And but in 1979, he was sort of fronting this incredibly hot sort of rock group called Critical Mass, who had a, a deal with MCA Records, and um, and so there was like this healthy rock scene in in Miami at that time. You know, um, there was a you know very young Johnny Depp. You know, was part of that. He was about fifteen years old, and he was in a band called uh, the Kids. Um, so there were all these sort of bands playing around. You know, Miami, Hollywood Beach, um, and uh, and Michael uh, introduced me to Holly. Um, so, and my connection to Michael was it was a DJ called um, Neil Mursky, and Neil Mursky had interviewed Bon Scott in Orlando in '79. So Neil had a an old audio clip of of Bon that he'd never played, and he said, "You know, you could have this." And I ended up, you know, putting it up on YouTube and using it in the book, and and so then he introduced me to Michael and Michael introduced me to Holly and then suddenly this whole fucking vista just sort of opened up in my research so I, I was in New York and went down to Miami stayed with Holly hung out with you know Neil um and uh, and Michael and literally we got in a car and we drove around Miami one day just visiting all the places that ACDC had hung out in, in 1979 as they were rehearsing Highway to Hell. So we went out to the old rehearsal studios. We went to the hotel where they stayed. Um, you know, we well, like, it was this is an amazing sort of tour in the car, you know, around Miami. Um, 
we went to this uh, old club called Tight Squeeze, which had been demolished at the time, um, which uh, w- was the, the place that you mentioned where, you know, Bond just walked in and, you know, took a piss in the toilet and sort of <laughs> yeah. did something said something to the guy next to him and then suddenly they're hanging out together and, you know, it turns into, you know, sort of six weeks together. Yeah. So so all these guys were really very uh, friendly to me. They kind of opened up. They introduced me to other people and suddenly I had this huge um, sort of panorama of, of kind of what had happened in 79 as ACDC was putting together Highway to Hell. And, of course, that was very interesting because suddenly some of the lyrics on Back in Black made sense. Like there was a backstory to You Shook Me All Night Long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I, we, we'll get to that, but I just wanted to comment. It's sort of like you're going through heavy metal forensics, it's yeah. like, like you said, one, all you had to do was get started. So you, yeah. you, you meet Michael, he, meet, he introduces you to Holly. Holly's like, well, you got to meet so-and-so and then you meet so-and-so. Yeah. And then uh, what, what about um some of the management, uh, David Krebs and, um, you, you know, the, the, the guys within ACDC, the uh, tour manager, Doug Thayer, yeah. how did you get in touch with these guys? Um, well, yeah, as you say, like when you get onto one person and then you gain that person's trust, they will refer you to someone else. You know, they will send a message to someone else and say, you know what, you should talk to this guy. And then so if you can get that sort of first piece out of the way, you know, the rest usually follow, but it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, a dogged tale of, of, you know, persistence perseverance and investigation and that's why it takes so long you know this this book might be 500 500 pages but you know i can guarantee you that you know five million sort of pages of research went into it yeah you know like uh, but there was a guy called phil carson for instance who was the president of uh, atlantic records in uh, uk in the 70s who signed acdc so he met me in new york uh, at a bar, he was very helpful to me, you know, in terms of, you know, the sort of business story of ACDC. But he introduced me to Mick Jones from Foreigner, and suddenly the next day I find myself in Mick, Forrad- uh, uh, Mick Jones's uh, house in New York talking to the, you know, the guitarist of Foreigner in his bathrobe. I mean, this is how it happens. So... You just you just never know where you're going to end up, but it, it just sort of it's a case of you know just do one piece at a time and and give yourself plenty of time to do it, and eventually you will you will complete it. Jesse, you're not the first journalist or writer to do this. How did you gain the trust and the access to you know a Mick Jones or you know uh, you you shared in the book like you've contacted Pete Way and. Chapman before yeah. Paul Chapman uh, what gave you the street credit no disrespect but how did you get that in when others probably have tried and didn't get that access uh yeah I, I think I one I mean the, the first book really helped the youngs mm-hmm. uh and I, and I and when I wrote the youngs I was a nobody no one fucking knew me okay right so 
There is some advantage to that, though, because you're not beholden to sort of old boy networks and all that. And I think a, a big problem of the, the rock media is that there are so many people working in that space who just don't want to upset anyone, sure. you know, or, or they want access or whatever. So they'll get Gene Simmons on their radio show next year or whatever. So never ask Gene Simmons, you know, a curly question. And so they, they sort of censor themselves. And so I never had that problem because I, 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 you know, I didn't care whether someone didn't want to talk to me after they'd talked to me. So I, I would ask them whatever the relevant question was because, you know, my access to them is not an issue. So, so there is some advantage to that. But I think, you know, it really just sort of comes down to perseverance and persistence and sort of, you know, not taking no for an answer. And so, you know, there were, you know, you mentioned Pete Way and Paul Chapman. You know, in terms of the story of, you know, Bond's last 24 hours, they were absolutely critical. So, you know, I did whatever it, 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 it you know, whatever I had to do to, to get to those people. Uh, 1979, they're touring America for uh, Highway to Hell. Were they headlining by then, or smaller venues when they when they first started in in um, in Texas? No, that was that was the support act of Moxie. So that yep. that was their their first show in Austin. But certainly by the end of '79, they were you know headlining. Um, but you know a lot of that time, particularly after they joined uh, the management. Company Lieber Krebs, they were doing a lot of arena shows. They were, you know, doing support for Aerosmith, Ted Nugent, you know, Journey, whatever. Um, but in in terms of smaller venues, yes, they were they were headlining some shows. So it's seventy nine. They're touring America. They spent a lot of time in Florida. Always going back to Florida. You're they're in Rochester, Buffalo, everywhere and anywhere. In this book, the detail about they would play and Bond would go out on his own, not really hang out with the band. You know, they really weren't a band of brothers like that. And why Why is that? Just because he was older or because he was drinking a lot? He was never passed up a drug to try? He, he was doing a lot of quaaludes and cocaine and, you know, drinking everything uh, you know, but he, he, in terms of his personality, I think he, you know, he got up there. He he had a job to do. He was pretty pretty reliable in that department. I, I, I actually only sort of really came across one show. I think it was in Rhode Island where he basically let the band down by being so drunk when he got on stage. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, he was he was very professional about. You know his his job, but once the job was over, he would go off and do his own thing. As as Pete Way said, he had a woman in every court, and 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 that's what he would do. You know, so I think that was that was his interest. He wasn't interested in hanging out with the other guys in the band at all. He was much older. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the amazing thing is, you know, I was only thirty three when he died, but he looked fifty three. He's you only thirty three. He was thirty three years old. It's ridiculous. The other night I went down in a YouTube um, rabbit hole. I was watching ACDC videos. I'm telling you, Jesse, I was 
I've been listening to this book since we connected. I actually had the book. I listened to it once like a year ago. And then uh, we connected. So I went back to listen to it again. And I'm driving around. I'm listening to my car. I'm re-listening to chapters. I would, you would, men- something would be mentioned about a show or something. I would go on YouTube and try to see if there's any footage of it. And there was times there was. So I'm doing like a lot of research and, you know, I felt like I was going through heavy metal uh, forensics. So yeah, it's just fascinating. So let's talk about the events that lead up to that February night that he died and the speculation that you have about the, the drug use, how he really died, the deterioration of of uh, Bond Scott. You could look at pictures and just see him breaking down. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a big noticeable difference between, you know, the Bond Scott of 1978 and, and the Bond Scott at the end of 79. Physically, they're two different people. You know, and, and it's quite, quite heartbreaking, actually, to sort of see some of the last photos of Bond because he just looks completely wasted. Um, and, you know, that that sort of week in February 1980 where he dies and, and all the, you know, the events leading up to that, you know, that was certainly fascinating to me as a, as a writer because I approached it like essentially a private investigation. Um, and the difficulty obviously was that it happened 40 years ago. Yeah. And a lot of the people who are involved in Bond's 24 hours, uh, don't want to talk or they're dead. Uh, you know, 80, 80% of them were heroin addicts. Um, so it, it was, it was incredibly difficult and that's why it ended up sort of taking a year and a half to, to kind of put it together. But. There was a statement by Alastair Kinnear that I think he'd made in about 2005 where he sort of went through what happened that night. So that was, you know, the bare bones for me. It was like my template of investigating those final 24 hours. So I would take what Alastair said and then I would go and compare it to what other people who were there had said and then suddenly... There were many inconsistencies. There were many sort of contradictions. And my job as an investigator, obviously, was to to go through each of those sort of inconsistencies and contradictions and sort of come up with the most plausible explanation for what actually happened. Um, I mean, I know this to, to the listener, this must sound incredibly dense. Um and it is. It, it was very, very difficult to follow. But I, I really believe that, that kind of what I've put down is the most sort of logical explanation for, for what happened that night. What kind of history of heroin use did he have that you based this on? Why would you think he's doing heroin that night? Well, I mean, uh, upon... Bon had a documented heroin overdose in 1975. I mean, that's established. Um, and in fact, you know, uh, you know, the 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 Rosie of a whole lot of Rosie was a 
sex worker in Melbourne who was a was a heroin user herself. So, um, and then in Michael Browning's uh, autobiography, Michael Browning was the manager of ACDC. He spoke of a second heroin overdose that Bonnet had in, I think it was in Paris, London. Um, and weirdly, so the Browning has sort of backtracked on that and said, you know, that, that that didn't happen, but it was in his book. And then, you know, my my um, my contention was that basically he had a, he had a third heroin overdose in... London in 1980, and and it was fatal this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were definitely people who I came across uh, during my uh, research who you know spoke of Bond's connection to heroin, and certainly like Silver Smith, who was his ex girlfriend, who was a heroin user herself. She would say, "Look, you know, Bond's poison of choice was 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 alcohol, um, but would I say that uh, he never touched heroin? No, I would say that he, you know, he never touched heroin. But I can't be a hundred percent sure. And he might have done this, and certainly when this person was in town, you know, Bond might have dabbled or whatever. So you know, she was always." kind of leaving open the door in, in some respect to the possibility of Bond having done that. So it wasn't like a 100% categorical, no, Bond never did heroin. Mm-hmm. And certainly when, you know, I get I get to the final 24 hours of his life and all the people who were surrounding him at that point, um, they were all heroin users. And Paul Chapman himself said that basically he had given money to Bond Scott to go off and and buy heroin and bring it back to his flat, you know. And then, and, and uh, you know, Chapman and Way also told me about another member of, of, of ACDC who was using heroin at that time. So it was, um, it was a common drug in rock circles. I laughed out loud in the audio book when the voiceover guy told the story, like mimicking a bond about. Whenever someone would give him something and he would say, uh, oh, I'll take a crack at that. Uh, meaning, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. If someone offered him something, he wouldn't pass anything up. Was he shooting up? Was he snorting it? I believe the first one was, was it was, um, he was shooting up. Uh, but the the one in 1980 uh, was a case of him snorting heroin. Um, so snorting brown heroin. Uh, which is apparently what everyone in London at that time was 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 doing, um, and you know, I, I, it's it's very difficult for me to kind of um, yeah. you know condense all this <laughs> into a you know a soundbite for a radio interview. I mean, yeah, it's like- I, and I and I agree, I agree, listeners. It's it's the book is huge. It's great. You get out there, you'll hear all the details. Uh, what I'm really getting at is it just, you know, Bonnie's out partying, just bad decisions when you're hammered, and it's just, you know, it's uh, roulette. It's just roulette. There's time. There's stories in the book of him going out, falling asleep, and unlocked cars, yeah. and yeah, 
it's just bad, bad decisions when you dr- just drink daily for months. That's yeah, the- but he wasn't—he re- wasn't really getting the help that obviously he needed. Um, you know, and some people have said, you know, I think you know management of ACDC should take some responsibility for that. Mm. You know, that's yeah, certainly a case can be made for that. I think maybe you know the the other members of the band could have done more, but you know, at the end of the day, as I say in the book, you know, Bond was his own man. He made his own choices. He made his own bed. You know, this was the lifestyle that he that he wanted for himself, and no one was going to stop him. So you know, he's responsible for his own death. You know, uh, he's responsible for the fact that he took that drug that night that that sort of ended his life, and 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 um, and no one else is to blame. But you know, there's there's certainly this tendency, I think, of some ACDC fans to infantilize Bond, you know, to say, that you know, all these other people who are with him, they're the ones who were to blame for, you know, Bond dying. You know, he should have been taken care of. He, you know, he should have been this, he should have been that. No, at the end of the day, he was an adult, you know, and he, yeah. he fucked up his own lot. Was- you know, it doesn't take away from the fact that, that, you know, I still admire him and I have a lot of... Uh, Love for him, you have to have love for him to to spend four years of your life writing about someone. You've got to have some love for him. Um, but at the end of the day, he's responsible for for what happened. Was there an autopsy? Um, yes, yes, there was. There was an autopsy, but as as I I make uh, present in the book, or, you know, it was a, it was a fairly straightforward, perfunctory. Uh-huh. Routine autopsy that was sort of handled and sort of conducted, you know, within the space of, you know, from from the from you know his body landing in the hospital to, you know, the coroner sort of issuing their their finding. It was all sort of done and dusted within the space of seventy two hours, and I think there was a lot more to it. The fact that you know, for instance, I can turn up a a uh, an eyewitness. You know, who was there, who said that she thought that Bond took heroin to someone else, you know, who said that she actually was actually in the car with Bond and Alistair Kinnear going back to Alistair's flat. It's like, hang on, there's another person involved in all this? What what the fuck were the police doing? This this has never come out in any any police investigation. Mm-hmm. That these people were. So if I can do it forty years later, you know, from my from my laptop in in fucking Barling or wherever. You know, yeah, like, I know. There's it, a, there is there is a serious fucking problem with the initial investigation into Bond's death, right? So, like, and like for instance, there's a fake address on the death certificate. How the fuck did that happen? You know, do, do people look at these details? Do, do, do you know this is this is what I'm talking about? I'm actually kind of doing what I believe the detective should have done 40 years ago. Yeah, you're saying where there's smoke, there's fire. It's like, what the hell's going on here? And um, so this book comes out. What about national media? You know, no one reached out to you. You know, you throw, you, you have this worm in the water. Rolling Stone, anyone get back to you? And- oh, in terms, of, in terms of, you know, big American 
uh, media outlets. No, it's you know, fuck Rolling Stone. No, they do they do fuck all um, in in that regard. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, the book has the book. You know, funnily enough, has actually outsold uh, the Youngs. Uh, it's it's definitely the most successful ACDC book ever. Mm-hmm. But in terms of you know like you know mainstream press coverage of of the book, um, most of it has sort of been in Europe or South America or Australia. It's uh, uh, not not so much in the United States, apart from um, you know. Me doing podcasts and 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 small little you know shows and, yeah. and things like, and 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 it it really kind of pisses me off and you know like I feel like saying to Eddie Trunk you know fuck you Eddie well yeah and you know? uh, excuse me that's exactly it it's because we don't give a fuck I give a fuck about this story I'm not you know it's this should, maybe this little grassroots every you know Metal Mayhem ROC that starts doing this. It gets yeah, out yeah. there, maybe because Brian Johnson has acknowledged the Australian writer in that Rolling Stone interview. Right. You you are getting some traction, not enough. Yeah, you know, I'm just sort of sick and tired of you know people like Eddie Trunk who you know they they yeah. you know will get ACDC on or whatever, and it's just like a fucking blowjob. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like be a fucking journalist. Ask the questions that kind of people are interested in in hearing answers to, and they're not being asked, right? So, the you know Michael Christopher, the the, the rock writer, he he asked a few questions of, of Brian Johnson recently about the whole lyrics issue. Now, now to me, you know Brian Johnson is highly unconvincing. Um, I think the fact that he addressed this whole story in his his book. And and did so, I think, in the space of a paragraph, you know, is very telling. Um, no one has really kind of, you know, put the hard questions to him or Angus Young about, you know, why there are so many um, sort of uh, contradictions in the story, you know, over the years about, you know, how these lyrics came about. Um, and it's about time, you know, people with platform uh, in the United States, um, really looked at this story because it actually it's it's really when you when you look at it it's like you know this is one of the most significant music stories of all time we are talking about the biggest selling hard rock album of all time if not you know one of the biggest selling five albums of all time mm-hmm. right that, that that involves hundreds of millions of dollars um that Brian Johnson's entire career was made off the back of this album. Um, and and the man, you know, that I wrote about, Bon Scott, ended up with $30,000 in his bank account. Um, it's a fucking tragedy. So, you know, my, my message to Eddie Trunk is, you know, fucking pull your finger out and do your job as a journalist. Yeah, it's uh, the writings on the wall. I'm going to let you share some of the details that lead you to believe that some of this uh, back in black was from Bon, because I'm convinced of it. I don't want to give all the chestnuts away, but give, let's hear some examples why you think the proof is there that Bon had his fingerprint on back in black. Oh, well, look, the, the number one thing I think 
And look, there, there, there are so many details in this book that I, I, I couldn't adequately cover them all in, mm-hmm. in spite of one answer. But the, the, the thing is that if you look at the history of Bon Scott's lyric writing, he was always writing from his own life experience. And that, and that is why the songs that he wrote during that period, they still resonate with people because there's usually a story behind them. You know, like uh, like a shot like a shot down in flames, or you know, it's it's a it's a tale of Bond's life. Down payment blues, a lot of Rosie. Down payment blues. You know, all these all these great songs. Right, so you feel like some sort of personal connection to Bond Scott, and then suddenly you know you have a song like you know you shook me all night long on on back in black, which I mean I don't care who you are. Uh, but if you're listening to that song, you need to acknowledge the fact that that is a very Bon Scott sounding kind of uh, lyric yep. in in that in that song and that style of of writing, which apparently sort of Brian Johnson sort of came up you know off the bat, you know without having any experience in lyric writing, um, was never able to reproduce after that album. So, you know, Brian Johnson does sort of interviews, you know, now, 42 years later, talking about, you know, his creative peak, which was 1980, which was his first album with no experience whatsoever in lyric writing, and, and then he was never able to do it again. <laughs> and I just don't believe it. Nope. Right. So so when I go down to Miami and I'm hanging out with Holly X, who has, uh, who was a, a beautiful woman even today in her 60s, you know, and she shows me photos, photographs of her when she was 19, 20, hanging out with, um, you know, Bon Scott in, in Miami. Um, and, I, and I see, you know, her in a bikini and I'm looking at American thighs and, and, and she tells me the story to, you know, the lyric, uh, you know, chartreuse eyes, which gets changed to, sightless eyes and she had a horse called double time and you know you know bonds bonds love of 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 clean vaginas you know she kept her motor clean all this sort of stuff i mean it it all fucking makes sense bonisms 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 all over right yeah so so um it's uh yeah you have to Understand, you know, like I'm, I'm down there in Miami, and I'm meeting someone that I feel like suddenly all the fucking dots have, have, have suddenly joined together, and I can actually understand the lyrics. So then, when I hear, you know, Brian Johnson talking about, oh, you know, I turned up in the Bahamas and I saw a, a, a woman on television, and she had amazing American thighs, and you know, uh, I used to work with cars, and that's why, you know. I had the line, you know, she kept her motor clean and all. It just, it, it doesn't convince me at all. No, not, and, not at all. Not at all. And and it just seems like the stories keep keep on changing all the time. And 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 if you go back and, and sort of listen to all the things that have sort of been said about the lyrics for that song, um, they're never consistent. Um, and at the end of the day, if, if you can then go and sort of, write a song as, as good as You Shook Me All Night Long in the space of, what, 15 minutes, um, which is one of the most perfect sort of pop rock songs of all time, uh, why can't you do it again? You know, Bon Scott could do it, 
consistently album and album after album after album after album, right? Why can't Brian Johnson? If he's that cool, let's do it. Let's do it, Brian. Let's see you do it again. Well, the thing with Brian Johnson, even when he was with uh, Jordy, what does he have? Four to five credited songs that he wrote. But this is the real kicker. Bon Scott passes away on February 19th. In 1980, and on July 25th, Back in Black is released, okay? That's a All little right. over 150 days. So you're telling right. me that this guy who was out of music gets the gig, they get together, they write music, he's never really wrote lyrics, they record, and the album's mastered and released, and it's one of the best, you know, highest selling, most fantastic albums of all time. Yeah, exactly. And as, as there's a guy on Bon Scott Forum called Larry Black, and he said, you know, the other thing is, um, you know, why would the entire, you know, sort of ACDC um, machine, the apparatus, management, crew, everyone, fly out to the Bahamas with all their equipment, you know, book studios, book, uh, book muttling, everything else, um, and not know whether their lead singer could actually write songs. Yeah. Right? So, the, you know, the, they get to the Bahamas and suddenly, you know, Malcolm Young is turning to, to Brian Johnson saying, oh, oh, by the way, you know, can you can you write lyrics? And it's like, no, don't fucking worry. That's not going to happen. Right? They went at they went out to they went out the Bahamas because they had songs to record. They didn't turn up without songs. I I think somewhere down the line that um they told a lie and then they had to stay with it all this time. It would have been easier yeah. right from the beginning. It's like look at how we were able to, you know, bonnet some leftover stuff. Brian's gonna do some of it and wow. The last question I have on all of this is the mention of the Scott family receiving a royalty check, some royalty checks from Back in Black, and why was Back in Black included in that bonfire box um, set? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Vince Lovegrove was a... Uh, he was a bandmate of, of Bonds in a, a band called the Valentines. This was obviously before ACDC. It was a, a bubblegum pop band uh, from Western Australia, and and Vince was convinced that basically Bond's lyrics had been used on Back and Black, and uh, he sort of uh, started a new career as a journalist. Managed to. Um, speak to the Scott family for a, for a story back in I think it was 2005 and he said in that story that he had been told by Derek Scott, the brother of, of Bon Scott um, that the family received royalties for Back in Black um, and he put this in print, he put this in his story in the West Australian um, newspaper and Vince also kind of wrote about this issue on his personal blog uh, in around, I think it was 2011, and he died in 2012 from memory, you know, in a car accident. But, you know, so what he 
he managed to sort of put down was was very valuable in that it was a sort of a you know the verbal testimony of someone who was very close to Bob Scott who also had a connection to the Scott family saying that this actually happened. So in terms of me actually being able to access things like you know <laughs> bank statements or whatever, no, that's no. never going to happen. Um, but what's interesting is that um, you know there are certain powers that that be that in, in the the Bob Scott world who are obviously very pissed off about the book that I've written. They're very pissed off that I have had the success that I've had with the book in terms of you know telling the true story of how he lived um you know the 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 connection to heroin and 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 so on so there was a you know a move in in recent times to kind of i think reclaim some of that territory so you know you'll find that the the bond scott estate you know they've got their own website now they're releasing sort of officially licensed sort of uh bond scott memorabilia and and uh products through their website there's a there's a bon scott bloody action figure now you know hmm. all this sort of stuff but they've also got their own website and and then on that website you know they've sort of said you know that the bonds bon scott estate doesn't you know receive royalties for any songs on on back and black but you know what does that mean um does that mean that they don't get a check at all you know what what does that mean so there, there are a lot of sort of inconsistencies and and um, questions that you know still are still unanswered about that whole thing. And then the fact is, at the end of the day, you know, I was the only journalist in the history of the world that went to the trouble of actually finding out how much money was was actually in Bond's bank account when he died, and there was absolutely fuck all. So I just think it's it's a uh, it's a tragedy, really. Uh, well, it's a fantastic piece of work, Jesse. Uh, the book, Bond, The Last Highway. Get over to jessefinksbooks.com. Buy it from there. Follow Jesse at Jesse Fink on Twitter. And like he mentioned, there's uh, Facebook, Bond Scott locations. And Jesse, I'm going to do my damnedest, uh, well, with my audience. And, you know, we're going to call up Eddie Trunk. We're going to wait on hold. At the very least, we say, hey, let's get the Jesse Fink, the uh, Bond, you know. We'll put that on there. We'll we'll get you. We'll do our share here. It's a, it's, it's a great, great book. So he, and again, Jesse Fink has a new new book coming out in 2023. And he teased, it's not a rock book. Um, what's this one coming out? It's a... It's a biography of a man called uh, Charles Howard Dick Ellis, who was a an Australian-born British intelligence officer uh, for MI6, who actually uh, came out to the United States in 1940 and set up uh, OSS, what became the CIA. And uh, he was accused of being a Nazi and Soviet spy, so um, a double agent. Uh, for enemy powers and he died in 1975 and it's a sort of a like Bon Scott it's sort of like a cold case investigation of you know the case against Dick Ellis you know whether he was a actually a traitor of epic proportions or whether he was actually innocent so that's sort of taken two years of my life as well 
Well, good. And this uh, this uh, pure narco looks interesting. The life story of uh, Luis Navia. So um, yeah, so that came out of Bob Scott in that you know uh, a friend in Miami had sort of put me onto a um, a big time cocaine trafficker from the 1980s who you know wanted to write his life story, and uh, I ended up spending three years you know working on that, and we've sort of um, we sold an option to that recently, so hopefully that gets made into a TV series soon. Oh, good. Then, you know, I would say then you get really rich and you move to some island in, uh, like, Bali, but you're already there, so <laughs> let's <laughs> fill the bank account. Uh, Jesse, uh, thanks for uh, spending your morning with us. I appreciate it, and, um, you know, good luck, man. We'll um, follow you on Facebook and check it out and do our best up here at Metal Mayhem to spread the the truth in all, all your work, friend. Thanks very much, mate. And if anyone's you know interested in, in uh, hearing more about Bond on Facebook, join uh, Bond Spot Forum. We'll have all this on the show notes and all on our website and everything. So everyone Thanks will. a lot, dude. All right, bro. Have a good one. And, um, you know, ride on, like Bond says, ride on. Okay. See you, man. Thanks. Bye. Oh, bye. Metal for Life. Thank you for listening to Metal Mayhem ROC. Check out our website at MetalMayhemROC.com for information on podcasts, archives, links to all our live radio shows, and all sorts of info. Please like, follow, and share with everyone, even your non-metal friends. And always remember to keep it heavy. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.